Welcome, everybody, to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience, a bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. I'm your host, Chris Messina, product lead at Republic, and my host is the regular voice of the daily Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, Brian McCullough. Hello, hello, everybody. And today, our guest is someone very special, uh, Chris Dixon, who leads crypto investing at Andreessen Horowitz, someone I've known for a long time. He may also be one of the biggest investors in the crypto space in the world, and certainly maybe the number one evangelist for Web 3.0, or rather Web 3. Hello, Chris. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. Brian, as you know, we did a podcast a couple of years ago about your book, which I still send to uh, to, to new teammates when they join our team as one of the kind of canonical books. So Can I it's, it's always a bunch a of people... A bunch of people got in touch with me because you guys reposted that recently, and they pointed out that in that conversation, you and I, you and I say, you know, there's not, there's sort of, it's boring right now in tech. There's not a lot of innovation. That was 2018, so here we are. Here we are. That's one. It's always, it's always something new. So, uh, Chris Dixon, uh, we're here to talk about that um, state of crypto report that y'all yeah. put out. Uh, was it this week or last week? Um, but. Yeah. Let me start off with just a couple a couple things that surprised mm-hmm. me or that I wasn't sure. expecting. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times you kept bringing it back to the creator economy, which was you know the, mm-hmm. the buzzword on every pitch deck before Web three mm-hmm. supplanted it. But I get the idea yeah. that you believe the best way to get to the promise of the creator economy is through Web three. Why do you think yeah. that is? Yeah. So I mean, so we had a couple slides in there. And- Specifically, one which showed the payouts of various kind of creator um, networks, including Web2 networks like YouTube and Twitter and Facebook, and then kind of the new emerging categories in Web3 like NFTs. Um, and I think one of the striking things is that I, I forgot the exact numbers, but NFTs, you know, it's smaller than the payouts to Web2, but not by that much. And this, you know, for this early in the movement, it's, it's something on the order of like 5 billion versus 20 billion. And I think that's partly a um, and what that means is that's money paid to creative people creating things on the internet, right? And that, that's money going directly to them. That's that's sort of the the net number that goes to those to those folks' pockets. Um, and I think it speaks to two things. Like one is, and I can talk more about this in a minute. I think that a lot of the innovations in Web three around things like NFTs provide powerful new business models for creative people. Number one, and number two, going back to Web two, Web two did a lot of wonderful things. YouTube. Facebook, it sort of democratized publishing and, you know, gave internet services that are mostly free to billions of people. But one thing it did very poorly was share that, share that, those, that money with, with the people who really kind of built the networks. I mean, if you look at networks like YouTube, people don't go to watch YouTube. They go to watch a specific YouTuber, right? People go to Facebook to hear from, you know, people they like. People go to Twitter to follow other people. Kind of remarkably, you know, networks like Facebook and Twitter, you know, they, their business model is advertising. They make literally hundreds of billions of dollars a year on advertising, and they share absolutely like zero with their with with the people that do that actually create all the content. It's an amazing kind of trick they pulled off, but I think it's a very brittle system. And what we're trying to do, you know, through our investing and partnering with entrepreneurs, is build out a new set of systems, which I think kind of encompass a lot of the great things about Web two. But also build systems that, that share much more of that uh, proceeds and kind of the economic upside with the people that really build those networks. So that's like one of the key innovations around Web3. It, but so, you know, my pushback on that would be, well, what's yeah. to stop once? It's almost like these are low teaser rates to get people onboarded onto this yeah, new no, system. But it's not, but that, no, that's, but that's, yes, I, I hear you. But I think a very important idea, and this is kind of going back to sort of the history of the Internet, which you know, Brian, quite well. 
in the first year of the internet, which I kind of think is 1990 to 2005-ish, kind of the governing protocols were, governing systems were protocols, right? It was HTTP, which is the protocol for the web, SMTP, the protocol for email, right? And so you built, as Larry and Sergey building a search engine, you were building on top of the web, right? You weren't sharing money with the web. There was no company doing that, right? Um, and, and, and that was very important because there was a, there is a network effect in email and there's a network effect in, in the web, but that network effect was owned by the community. There was no one company. You could leave. Very important feature of Web One, right? Is I could go and like host my email with an email hosting provider, or host my website with you know a website provider like Rackspace or something. And because the network effect did not accrue to Rackspace, it accrued to the protocol. I could switch. I could switch from if Rackspace raised the rates too much, I could leave and go to another web hosting provider and take my network with me. Right. In the case of the web, all the inbound links and other kinds of things I'd accrued in the case of email, all of like my email, like newsletter lists and everything else, I could take that with me, right? And that fundamentally put constraints on the economics of the businesses. What happened in Web 2 is the network effect accrued to those companies. On Twitter, you know, I have whatever, 100, 800,000 followers or something. If I leave Twitter, I'd lose that. The network effect accrues to the company, and that gives them disproportionate power. So a very, very important feature of Web 3 is the network effect accrues to the community to protocols and not to companies. So people often, critics will often cite companies like OpenSea, which we're investors in, and say, oh, look, it's the same thing again. OpenSea charges 2.5%. And, and they have some, some real competitors who are putting pressure on that 2.5% because you can switch. Because the NFT, they don't, control, they don't hold the NFTs. People that go to OpenSea and are used to kind of the Web2 model and they see these NFTs on there, they think it's, they think it's just like controlled by that website the way it is in a video game or a Web2 product. It's not. It's, those NFTs are held on a blockchain, on the Ethereum blockchain in most cases. And therefore, the network effect doesn't accrue to them. And so the switching, so people can switch. And because people can switch, that puts fundamental limits on the economics they can charge. This is the key, the key concept when you're building internet networks is where, does the, where do the network effects accrue? If they accrue to a protocol, then you have economics that favor the network participants, quote unquote, decentral, decentralized networks, decentralized power, decentralized economics. If the network effects accrue to a company, this is how you end up with a situation of Web 2 where you have five companies that control everything and have essentially monopolistic power. And that was the mistake we made in Web 2 was allowing that network effect accrue to those companies and giving them that much power. And, you know, it may be that it's too late. Some people, a lot of kind of cynics, and there are a lot of sort of cynics out there around, around Web 3, um, would say that it's too late. I would argue it's not too late. We're still early in the in the kind of development of the internet, and it's a it's a fight worth having. It's worth it's worth going back and trying to build better systems that more that that share the economics and the control of the networks in in a in a much broader way. So, okay, Chris, this is exactly the point that I really wanted to talk yeah. to you about. Sure. Um, given you know my background and my experience. You know, uh, 15 oh. years ago this year, I started working on something called uh, the Diesel Project, which was uh, mm -hmm. the distributed social networking uh, effort mm -hmm. to try to decentralize the social web. And mm -hmm. as I've hear, heard you talk about these protocols, mm -hmm. you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of the concepts that we were working on back then that have kind of come back into the fore. And so what I'm yep. wondering about, you know, when you talk about the, the early days of the web and what oh. you know, Larry and Sergey were able to do with Google, they were yep. building on a foundation that was funded mm -hmm. by taxpayers that was built mm -hmm. by, you know, the military and academics. And that was sort of part of an open marketplace, or I shouldn't say marketplace, yep. an open resource that anybody could build upon. So my question to you is really about mm -hmm. incentives and aligning incentives sure. for the adoption of interoperable protocols mm -hmm. that create a mm -hmm. new type of maybe distributed or decentralized competition mm -hmm. um, environment. Why do you think it'll work this time when it didn't work last time? 
You're saying it didn't work last time as in like the 2003 to 9 I'm era? saying like Web Which, 2. Like essentially yeah, doing look, a number was, of – By the way, Chris, I mean I remember yeah. meeting you. I was there. I was, yeah. so I was just you – know, I was working on that stuff. And I was I always on the side of like RSS and the open stuff. And so, I remember. And I'll that, tell you, that's why and I want to have this conversation. It's no, like no, no, how do we way, go I'm sideways? Saying, like, in the sense of like I – you know, just, just for the record, I've been just you know, as, as you have um, working on this and blogging about it and everything else for 15 plus years as yeah. well, even before blockchains and everything else. And it's always been a, an issue I'm passionate about. Specifically with respect to Web two, I think you know, like RSS is a big is a big interesting question, right? RSS to me right. was kind of the foundational protocol that was most likely to challenge things like Facebook and Twitter, right? Um, and so, like, I think a really really important question um, to ask is why did RSS essentially lose? I mean, it still exists, but it's not you know used by yeah. three billion people the way that people like you and I wished it was fifteen years ago. Why did that happen? I would argue it happened around, if you go back and I've looked at the data, it's around 2008, right? You know, you had a couple of things happen. You had the Facebooks of the world kind of, you know, hit hundreds of millions of users. You had the iPhone come out, you know, which just sort of accelerated everything. And then, you know, mobile apps and all of that kind of stuff. Um, you go back to 2008, and you, you remember the experience to set up an RSS feed. You had to have a domain name, first of all, right? And you look at domain name. I have a domain name. I'm sure you both do. Yep. I've had mine yep. forever, right? And I was one this is this that, that was the original decentralized social web. That was the concept right. of Ezo. But like I had a domain name, and, and you it know, was so hard to use. Cost, what, you have to buy it. You have yep. to pay bucks a year. Yep. You have to have be semi technical to go set it up. And then what happened is, remember, Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook came along and offered the same functionality, but you just type C Dixon into a box, and voila, you've got a feed, and that user experience won, right? And so then the question is, why why couldn't RSS offer a similar user experience? And like one one. Thing you hear commonly is oh just open protocols you know it's harder but that's mm -hmm. that's that's not really the case like you the way open protocols work is you you have a kind of a partnership between private and public like smtp is still a very popular protocol smtp is not the front end gmail is or you know whatever well, i mean typically you, you accept end. some yeah. limitation of freedom yeah. for a better yeah. experience or you accept yeah. more complexity to have more choice. So, for example, when we were designing OpenID, you could use whatever yeah. identity provider that you wanted. Yeah. You could put in a URL. Mm -hmm. And eventually yeah. we learned that that was too complex and that users would get confused and they didn't know yeah. what to do. So we had to give them a list of buttons. And now you look at Wallet the, Connect and it's the yeah. same thing. I think the fundamental missing thing in 2008 from the side of the open, the open side was missing. They, they were fighting with one arm tied behind their back. And specifically, mm -hmm. I think the missing piece was there was no way to store state data in a, in a community-owned way. Mm -hmm. um, it would have been very nice, architecturally, if you're building one of those systems, to be able to offer feature parity. How, how would you have offered feature parity if, if you're an RSS reader with Twitter? You would need to somewhere to store that I'm C. Dixon without asking somebody to go set up a domain and pay $8 a year, which is not a consumer experience, right? And there was nowhere to store it. That, that's exactly what Ethereum is. Ethereum is a community-owned database. Yeah, so it's the ledger. The ledger is what makes it different I, I this think time. you were missing community-owned state. That, you go back, if you, hmm. take, if you take a serious look at this, which I've done, and I yep. would encourage others to do, and you imagine yourself as a product designer in 2008 trying to make RSS feature parity with Twitter and Facebook, the thing you are missing is shared community on state. I, I will defend that. Can, can you unpack what that means? Because it's a little bit abstract. Because one of the things that we did work on was something called activity streams. And that was designed to actually take RSS to the next level and not just specify how blog posts but it was could be like RSS, like rendered. RSS is stateless. It's stateless. I mean, you can keep state at the mm. nodes, but it, the protocol itself is stateless, okay, so right? You're talking state specifically. Okay, got it. Yeah, storing stuff. Like, how, how do you store Like a like. How do you, how do you store my polygraph? Yeah. Actually, I wrote a long, couple of blog posts about this. There was this interesting Wired article in 2008 where they literally tried to do this. And they're like, the thing we're missing is a place to store your follow graph and your right. name and your username. Like, that's what you couldn't do back then. 
and 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 asking regular users to go. Remember, friend of a friend and open yep. open idea. I remember all these things, and I was yep. working on you know, supporters of them. Um, but all of those things, they could never, I believe, never get to feature parity. And so, I believe, like what Ethereum is, for example, or a blockchain like Ethereum. One of the very important things about it is it's a it's a way for you to share to, to store state in a way it's that can be shared by a user database. or owned by a community. Yeah, that's totally right. what it is. I mean, yep. for, for some reason, it's become like politicized and you know all these heated debates. Anyway, well, you bring money into the mix well, and yeah. it confuses things. Well, yes, the, the, there's money in there and there's other things and there's a whole you know it's somehow gotten mixed in with politics and everything else. But fundamentally, that's what Ethereum is a place to have community owned or user owned, depending on how you architect its state and a way to compute on that state. It's a it's a community owned computer. Um, yep. And that unlocks new capabilities, including, I think, I think very important capabilities for the sides who want to make these systems open um, and not have them be controlled by companies. I mean, that's essentially where you think about the, the thing that these Web2 companies did. They basically stepped in. They said, you can't source store state. We'll do it for you. Seemed like a nice thing at first. Next thing you know, they're like taking all the money and all the control, right? I mean, it was, I think it was very much of a bait and switch. And by the way, sometimes we criticize, Chris, weren't you part of that? Yeah, I was part of that. I didn't think it would end this way. <laughs> you know, like, I don't think anyone any of my friends who were involved in that expected it to end with like four big companies that control the whole internet. Like this is not what we were signed up for not what we want. It's not good for anybody except for those four companies. It's bad for creativity. It's bad for innovation. It's bad for entrepreneurship. It's bad for society. Like this is not what I signed up for. And I don't think it's too late to fix it. And I think web three is the best chance to fix it. What, what are like, I mean, we're still using the concept of a company to pursue yeah. these goals and outcomes, right? So you've, you've deployed a, an enormous amount of capital to that end. Right. And so what is the incentive? What is the motivation for the companies that are actually building Web3 yeah. to not pursue the same outcomes and goals that the most yeah. successful companies that exist today are or have well, already succeeded yeah. at? So yeah, you're right that in many cases, the, 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 thing, the projects we invest in will start as companies. The goal is to have the company go away. So if you look at something like Ethereum, there is no Ethereum company. There's a foundation that supports it right. the same way there's a Linux foundation. Exactly. But there's no Ethereum company. Right. There are tokens, Ethereum, Ether, the tokens. And those are owned by various people, including some of the people, you know, I presume, I don't know the details, but I presume some of the people that originally like the Palak who worked on it have tokens, you know, commensurate with their contribution. Many other people, you know, bought them early on, earned them early on, et cetera. So it's essentially just sort of the distribution of tokens is kind of the effect of ownership. And there is no company, it's just a foundation. And I think that's the right way to do it. I mean, same with Bitcoin, right? There is no, yeah. you know, there are various foundations and things, but there's no Bitcoin company. And I think that's the, that's the, to me, that's the goal of all of the things we base most of the things we invest in, I should say, um, some things like Coinbase, you know, that was an investment of ours that that will likely remain a company. But the kind of pure things that we're mostly investing in are things where they start off as a company, and then hopefully over time the company goes away and it just becomes this kind of decentralized protocol owned by. Is that an explicit or an implicit assumption or agreement that you have with the founders? Well, it's. I mean, I. I it's certainly something I. We don't control the companies. Um, just so you know, I mean, we invest. We right, but, but economic like, rights. I guess like what, like what I'm trying to like think through with you. I'm extremely explicit about it, and I think most uh -huh. people we invest in agree with it. And we build terms in to to you know expecting that. So in our term sheets, there's a standard clause which says at some point if you dissolve the company and you know you have tokens instead, we get some portion of tokens commensurate with our investment. So we expect it. We plan on it. You know, people can. Entrepreneurs control the company, and they can. Take I think the, the, the hard that, thing, though, like, is yeah. like one aligning incentives and aligning context. Because you have someone yeah. like Jack Dorsey, right, who is yeah. previously CEO of Twitter and and spun up yeah. uh, Blue Sky, and he's yeah. now saying that Twitter should be a protocol, and yet there are too many vested interests, quite literally, yeah, especially in this moment, now, who Twitter. want I mean, to probably, persist. Frankly. You know, the company, 
So yeah, I mean, look, yeah. look, look at Twitter's cap table. It's Fidelity and like a bunch of these right. like giant money management firms at this point. I don't think they're going to switch tokens anytime soon. So it just may be too late, frankly. I mean, that'd be awesome. If, well, I mean, like, so happen, will you know. Web3 companies somehow avoid that fate and having the same hooks in them? I hope so. You know, and like, the, look, I mean, <laughs> I mean, like, look, Jack Dorsey says, you know, A16Z owns Web3. I mean, if you right. actually look at it, and I think we're going to put out, we're going to try to put out a report. We have to do it in a way that, you know, uh, that honors all our confidentiality agreements with our companies and things. But essentially, our average ownership of tokens at this point is is certainly, at the, in the new things we invest in, certainly sub 5%, mm-hmm. um, which is very, very, you know, historically, venture capitalists back in the, well, back 30 years ago would, you know, have majority control of companies in some cases. You know, maybe 10 years ago, 20%. In crypto, I think the norm is like 3% or something. And in fact, if you look at generally the token distribution of most of these companies, at least 50, the norm is 50% at least goes to the community and, and is for free based on their, their um, contributions to the network. So, for example, imagine a you know, Web3 version of, and this is something we've actually actively investing in, Twitter, discourse, et cetera, um, and imagine where users earn tokens for their you know, for building software that, that makes the, for building client software, other kinds of software that makes the network better, for doing various content contributions. And the basic assumption, I would say actually it's probably 60% these days, 50 to 60%, somewhere between 50 to 60% of the tokens, and this is explicit in our, in our investments, will go to the community free mm-hmm. of charge, airdrops based yep. on earning things. Now, you know, I think what's, what's useful about that is two things. Like one is, um, the hardest thing, if you if you're used to building networks, is getting over what's called the chicken and egg problem, right? Well, so, the cold start problem, the, which the Web three, exactly I, I don't think, has been totally solved. But yeah, continue. It's not totally solved. It's not so for sure. But financial, but you know, tokens and financial tokens help. can be a very useful tool to getting over that chicken and egg problem. Now, you know, critics will say, "Oh, isn't that like a Ponzi scheme?" No, it's not a Ponzi. It's a Ponzi scheme if there's not an end state that's an actual useful network. And the things we invest in, in every case, we believe there's an end state where it's a useful network. In the end, you have a decentralized Twitter. And people are sharing content and earning money and doing all sorts of interesting things. You use financial incentives to try to get over that cold start problem. Yeah. But the financial incentives over time go away. And there's all of these things have a diminishing kind of issuance curve for the financial incentives. And that's the norm. I mean, these are like in our term sheets. These are, these are all norms in the industry. Like, you know, there'll always be cases where people deviate off of it and things like that. But this is just sort of generally the, the norm. And and I think, you know, I think as long as we kind of keep it, these kind of structures baked in, I think there's a lot of safeguards around having it kind of deteriorate the way that Web2 did. With everybody fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features Features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. I use this, and you should too. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee, so get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
Yeah. Um, Brian? Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to wedge in a couple more things yeah, that sure. surprised me from, from the report. Sure. Um, the, the biggest one was that 49% of crypto wallet activity is related to gaming, and 20% of NFT sales last year were gaming-related assets. Yeah. So given that A16Z just raised a big fund focusing mm -hmm. on gaming investments, clearly you see these yeah. areas overlapping. I do, yeah, for sure. And we, and, and so, for example, we, uh, we, yes. And so we've probably done in our crypto activities, I mean, these are not, these games haven't launched yet, probably 15 investments related to gaming. And in some cases we, you know, have done those partnering with our games fund. Um, for sure. I think, like, I think games, like games are not the ultimate goal here, at least for me. I mean, for me, we want to kind of restructure the internet and social networks and everything else, but I think games can be a very important kind of tip of the spear. Um, I think it's very likely that, you know, you like a hit game, we have one in our portfolio called Axie Infinity, you know, which is one, I think it's one of four discords that hit the discord limit of whatever it is, 800,000 users. And they did that without even being in the app, they're not app store. Um, and just, you know, it became really, really popular kind of just organically. Um, and it, it was, it, you know, kind of an early case. I think there'll be many more, but one of the things we're seeing now is the founders who are working on kind of web three gaming are coming from traditional gaming world. So they're coming out of companies like Riot and Blizzard and, you know, kind of these top end game companies, they have like proper, they built, you know, or worked on in some way, like, you know, hit games before. And they're excited by the idea where you can now build economies in these games where instead of all the money going to Epic, who makes Fortnite, so Fortnite has a $3 billion, something on that order, uh, virtual goods economy, but all the money ends up going to, to Epic. What the Web3 model is, is you now use NFTs, which are basically virtual goods owned by users instead of owned by the company. You create new kinds of economies. The, the, the kind of sponsoring entity, Axie Infinity, et cetera, takes a tax rate. I think Axie's tax rate is 5%, but they don't take 100%. And there's this very cool kind of peer-to-peer -peer economy that can develop. So you, I don't know if you're familiar with games like EVE Online. There's, there's a long tradition of, of kind of virtual worlds where there's economies but outside of a few exceptions like Counter-Strike, generally the, the kind of goods are locked in the system and people can build up things, but they ultimately can't kind of take, the, take their goods out with them. Um, and so the difference here is you, you would sort of remove that constraint and let people actually kind of make real money. Um, now, it's got to be a very delicate balance to not make it just kind of a mercenary community that's only trying to make money. You need to make sure it's a fun game, too. Um, and you balance those two things. You know, Roblox is actually an example where it's not an NFT-based thing, but they do a pretty good job of that. So anyone can create a Roblox kind of mini game and um, earn money from it. And so that, that's kind of a neat model. Um, before, before we let you yeah. go, I, yeah. I have to, I have to ask you about, you know, sure. some of the current turmoil in, in crypto spaces. Yeah. Um, it, it's sort of um, axiomatic that in, in the past when there've been crypto winters, um, yeah. that's when a lot of the yeah. development energy, for the next big thing was was beginning to happen mm -hmm. during mm -hmm. those winters. I'm curious if you're seeing now, I've seen people anecdotally say that developer activity in crypto has never been higher. What are you seeing in terms yeah. of projects starting and people interested in the space? We have a slide in the deck that shows the, the data that we collected from GitHub, which shows it going up higher. I will tell you this, which is I have a bunch of friends in Silicon Valley, sort of tech people who are professional investors who have no interest in Web3. They're just sort of generalist tech people. And I'll tell you also anecdotally from our firm, you know, we have a, we have a lot of vent, big venture practices that don't do crypto. I think I would say it's more than 50% of all tech, early stage tech startups today 
throughout the industry are doing Web3. And I hear this again and again from investors. So, and so that what that means is not just developers, but like really, really strong product people. I mean, we just funded in the last six months, I would say some of the best teams out of some of the best Web2 companies. They're coming out in droves. Look, I mean, do you want to, you're like a smart AI person. You're a smart product manager. Do you know what, you know, what do you actually do at Google today? Like, there's probably like a hundred people doing actual R&D. And as far as I can tell, none of that's shipped. I mean, what's Google hasn't shipped a single novel project in over a decade. And the rest of the people you're working on, like, you know, whatever, like some blue, blue bar on the corner of some advertising dashboard. And it's just not fun. We hear it again and again. They come out and they're like, these, these, these really smart engineers, product managers, like, this is boring. I'm like, you know, I'm doing, I'm fixing some little piece of the Death, Death Star over here. I want to go join like this this exciting new, you know, kind of swashbuckling movement. And so there's just a massive drove of people coming out and, you know, we're, our job is to kind of partner with them and, and fund them. Um, and yeah, no, for sure. It's um, the, the kind of the number of, it's just night and day, the kind of level of entrepreneurs, product managers, engineers, technologists today versus any other time in crypto. I've been in crypto for 10 years. So, um, you know, this stuff's going to take some time. Products need to be built. Um, and, and launched and marketed, um, but but I'm very excited, and I, and I think a lot of that, you know, we tried in that report to be balanced. That data was very carefully scrubbed. Um, you know, we have a data science team, but I think there's a lot of really positive signs. You know, like it's not there yet. There's a lot of work to do, but you know, I'm I'm very excited. I think one of the things that we're, you know, Brian and I, being both you know historians and also participants in some of the history, um, yeah. is again to try to think towards the future about what do we miss? What do we get wrong? What, what was not included yeah. in the way that we approach things, you know, back in, you know, sort of the early days of web two, um, that we want to try to, yeah. you know, you know, fix or address or adjust fix? now. Yeah. One of the big things that I guess I yeah. want to ask you about, you've mm-hmm. got all these, all these amazing talented people coming into mm-hmm. web three projects and startups. And I see it too. You know, a lot of my friends mm-hmm. are, are working in the space, mm-hmm. but it, it seems like we're still going to be possibly repeating a lot of the negative, um, I don't know, patterns, that have led mm-hmm. us, you know, in some ways to where we are now. And in some ways, I guess my question is about uh, participation, governance, yeah. and we have this pattern of DAOs, but I, I don't, yeah. I haven't seen as many of them actually kind of working functionally at scale over a long period of time. So we're trying to do many, many yeah. things at the same time, which creates a complex yeah. nest of stuff. Um, and I guess what I'm wondering is like, what does the startup environment look like in, I know this is going to be very hard to, you know, think yeah. about, but in 10 to 15 years, uh, if yeah. we're only changing technology, if the only change is the ledger without also changing governance and participation and how we think about, you know, the way in which we were quite yeah. exclusive in designing a lot of the web two platforms. Yeah, I think it's a great question. So like governance is a very important question. And, and by the way, like I talked more about economics so far, but I mean, one of the key ideas with these kind of web three networks is that they're both, you know, you change, you sort of decentralize both the economics and also the governance. Yeah. I think the most sophisticated DAOs right now are probably um, things like DeFi, sorry, um, in DeFi, like MakerDAO, yeah. for those who don't know it. Like, that's a very interesting, I mean, you know, you can, there's sort of two sides to MakerDAO. There's the financial, it's a stable coin and financial sort of thing. Um, but then there's the other side, which is sort of the governance of it. And it's truly kind of, I think it's truly decentralized. It's got this very interesting governance model. I think it's worked, you know, it's worked pretty well. Um, Uniswap, Compound, Aave also are some pretty interesting DAOs. I mean, sort of, I think DeFi kind of pioneered a lot of this stuff. I think there's a lot, you're right, there's a lot of people experimenting. Um, there's a lot of missing tooling. There's, there's missing concepts. You know, that, there's sort of two ways. This is the whole, it's just, I agree with you, this generally kind of the DAO space is early. 
like I think most people in tech probably only really started thinking about DAOs in the last 12 months. Um, it was sort of this really kind of niche, you know, kind of crypto thing before that. So it's still early. I think, look, I mean, you can look at that two ways. It can be, it's early, you know, there's a lot to do. Uh, you know, they don't have product market fit yet. That's sort of the, the negative way to look at it. The positive way to look at it is come join us. This is an amazing time to help build these things, to help shape it. And look, you're right. Like, this stuff can go off the rails too. I think one thing I would love to see, like right now, it's sort of this, we have these critics, but they're really outside of the crypto community. And, and frankly, like, it's just, they just don't know basic stuff. Like the sort of these yeah. kind of loud web three. I mean, I just, it's frustrating to me because they don't even do kind of basic research. And so it's funny to see a lot of the same conversations kind of happening over again that happened yeah, 10 years ago. Yeah. So I would love better critics. I would love some of those folks. Maybe, maybe it's not them. Maybe it's a new, a new set of people. But I would love to have people in the space who are kind of more critical, more product focused. Sounds like the kind of questions you're asking These are great questions. You know, um, make, how do we make sure that DAOs don't fall down some kind of trap the way that the Web2 companies did? How do we make sure it doesn't turn into some chaotic, awful thing? You know, how do we think through, like, what does decentralized content moderation look like? What does decentralized governance look like? These are great questions. And it would be great to have more people coming in and discussing it as a, instead of just sort of, you know, writing off the whole thing. Right. So are I you, are you like, investing in yeah. companies that are working on those problems? Because clearly both content moderation, you know, yes, pro-social absolutely. engagement sure. we is just, super We've done important. a whole bunch of it. A bunch mm -hmm. of it isn't announced yet, but we've done a bunch of, um, should be soon. So it's not my place to announce it, but, uh, but sure. a bunch of so, sort of social stuff. Where, yeah, for sure. And there's been a lot of really interesting kind of deep thinking around content moderation and what that looks like in a way that, you know, like I mean, you, nobody, you know, everyone wants a system where I, I think, you know, where there's, where there's, you know, rules that keep people safe and follow mm -hmm. laws and all the other kind of things you, you want to do in a good system, but also do it in a transparent way, right? I don't think the current way, I, my biggest issue with the current way it's done is it's opaque. Um, mm -hmm. And, and just, and that, and that, you know, that, what that does, I think is it, is it really hurts. I mean, you see what's going on on Twitter these days and just the anger on all sides. It's and opaque, but it's also very hard, right? And I think this yeah. is one of the, the core things that I've been wondering about, right? Like, let's say yeah. Elon, you know, does complete the acquisition yeah. and then in theory somehow open sources the algorithm. It seems to me that there's not enough education that's occurring to allow people to actually inspect and understand the yeah. information that, that would be given to them. Like, I, I feel like the I think, algorithm look, would I think be out there on GitHub. I we kind of solved it with email. I mean, I, I look, spam's uh, not perfect, I would say, but I think it's decent. And that was solved hmm. in a centralized manner. Um, you know, I, I think the, with the, I mean, we have systems like the web and email that exist that are not controlled by, you know, a company, um, a single company doing content moderation. And I think things are, I would argue under reasonably good control. It's not perfect. You know, there's stuff goes in your spam filter. You get bad stuff. I'm sure there's, yeah, I was going to say that's the adversarial problem, right? Like when you're in yeah, attention I mean, economy, look, everybody I mean, wants to be able to exploit attention at a lower marginal but the, cost. But look, you have, I mean, what you had in the case of email, right, is you had a marketplace where a whole bunch of of companies for a little while. went out, yeah. Brightmail, Postini, for those who remember these old days, you know, there was a whole kind of wave of, yeah, there was a whole wave of anti-spam companies who went out and you had like, instead of having one team at Twitter try to solve it, you had mm. 50 really smart teams try to solve it and you had a market for it and people could choose among it and it worked. And that, that's how you do it in the web three way. So I, I feel like, you know, when people say that you can't do it this way, like they're just ignoring the, the history of this. Like we have, we have examples where this has been done. Now, I'm not saying it's trivial and, Look, as tech has become more and more important, you know, these networks have become more and more important. They start shaping global politics, everything else. The stakes are higher, yep. you know, so we've got to take this thing seriously. But the idea that you, the only way to do it is with a group of, you know, product managers at a company, it just, just seems to me ignoring history. 
When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID, and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation, where they check user identity. But user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months, or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Octa-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com/ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's k o l i d e dot com slash ride collide dot com slash ride. Let's be real for a minute. Most guys would wear a T-shirt every day of their lives if they could. The problem is that most T-shirts are not acceptable to wear at work or out on a hot date night. But today's sponsor, Cuts, has finally changed that. Cuts T-shirts are such high-quality, wrinkle-free, and so buttery soft that you can look like you're dressing up even when you're dressing down. Yeah, you heard that. Wrinkle-free. You never have to substitute comfort for fashion ever again. If you see me in a T-shirt, it's likely one from Cuts. I'm also a huge fan of their AO5. Pocket pants, the right sort of step up from jeans without going all the way into dress pants, like literally my ideal Venn diagram of professional looking but comfortable feeling. When you touch something from Cuts, you can immediately feel the quality. Their proprietary fabric blends are ridiculously soft and breathable. They don't wrinkle, and they look way more expensive than they actually are. For a limited time, our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you use code RIDE at checkout. That's 20% off your order at. CutsClothing.com with promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. CutsClothing.com, promo code RIDE for 20% off. Okay, so we're, we're at time for you, and I want to make sure that if you yeah. would like to leave, you can. If you want to stick around, we'd love to have you. I do have okay, one more question for you. Yes, sir, let's do it. Okay. Last question is, I guess, if you could go back in time, you know, to uh-huh. the early, I don't know how far back you want to go, but I'm thinking 2006 to 2008 was sort of a yeah. moment in time. You know, we had Facebook in the room when we were talking about decentralizing the social web. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a lot of energy there. If you could go back and wave a wand, what would you change and do differently? Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, like there were two, I, I mentioned one challenge, which is I think there were architectural limits to what the open side could do. I think there were also incentive limits. Like there's been no, you mentioned how protocols, you know, academia and government funded the early yeah. internet protocols, which is amazing. And I, you know, I mean, it's, it's an awesome thing that that happened, but there's been, I mean, name a protocol that's been developed in the last 30 years in a serious way. I mean, when that heartbleed bug happened, open SSL, you know, which is a, which is a, it's not a protocol, but it's a library that's, that runs like most of the encryption on the internet. They had this major bug. It turned out there was a half a developer working on it. Why? Cause there's no way to fund these things. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think, look, I think there were, I, I don't know specifically, like I, as I mentioned, like I would, I think keep having a way to, to feature parity with Twitter by having a way to sh- store state, things like that. But I also think on the incentive side, how, you know, like you look at the times when look at the, the employee count of Facebook from 2008 to 2015, it went from whatever it was relatively small to, you know, I don't know, 50,000 people. Right. 
how, how would RSS have, have funded? What percentage of these people were working in advertising though? Yeah, no, that's right. But like, even if they had, let's say 2000 really good developers or a thousand yeah. or whatever it might be, it's still a lot more, you know, it's hard. So you got to marshal the forces on the other side. And like the best ways we know how to do that is one kind of the Linux way, right? Which is, well, you know, by the way, Linux, you know, I mean, people sometimes ignore this. Linux is actually corporate funded for the most part. Yeah, um, it's corporate, you know the biggest the yeah. biggest funder of Linux is Intel, and why well, does Intel do it? The biggest funder of Mozilla is Google. Yeah, and they do and they do it because for like a bunch of kind of business strategic reasons. Yeah, right. I mean, so like for Intel, it's good to have a strong open source operating system that kind of balances Windows. So there's one way, which is really corporate funded open source, and I believe that we've discovered through kind of Web three and tokens another way to do and to do um, kind of development of open systems. I think ENS is a really interesting example, Ethereum namespace, yep. where they have a token and they use it as a treasury in the DAO and it funds the development of the, of the ecosystem. And I think that's a really interesting new way to do kind of public goods funding. So that's so going back to 2008. I mean, look, I, I don't know, maybe it was it's a great question. I think there was the kind of technical architectural feature parity question I mentioned. Um, and I think the other thing is the incentive thing. I don't know. Maybe like maybe it was just a fait accompli. We were kind of screwed back then, and I mean, the, 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 we had yeah, the dark. The, the White Walkers were coming, and we couldn't <laughs> do anything about it. But now, like maybe, maybe we can. And I'm not ready to give up. I think we should keep trying. I don't know. I I think we should. You know, this, this it seems like a. I don't. I don't think it's, it's a question of whether we should keep yeah. trying or not. I think a question is: Do we invest in the right things, and are we actually? <laughs> sort of solving for the right set of problems given what we've learned and yeah, like, 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 I, like, 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 like i'm a fan by the way of like things like mastodon for some reason. i was gonna say yeah mastodon is a, is a great it's example great, but, but look but yeah but it's how many users it's not it hasn't broken out why i think it's because they have no global namespace i'm not cdix and i have to give some weird name i'm like cdix on some social server it's this very 1990s architecture it's not I mean, a modern we solved this problem actually in 2009 i mean the email address granted it's pii now but that was the the best it was a like username at a domain and actually that is what mastodon does it's a global yeah, I mean, space. well I, you know so i think the, the key when i used it I, I have an account i'm cdixon at some social server whatever it is right. at some some url some person that's at least my well, i won't my mention i names but i mean there have been a lot of attempts well, to solve I mean, the identity problem the question of like why is mastodon at whatever single digit million users it's at and why is facebook oh, you at say the same thing about true and, social or getter yeah but i think i think there's one question is on the product side how do you get a feature yeah. parity how do you make it a product that feels like a facebook product I mean, I, that would be step one for me. And I think there's a lot of sort of technical um, architectural things missing, including a clean way to do shared state. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know. I do think that, like the shared state piece, the the blockchain piece, those are definitely enablers that will lead to new types of, of interaction. One thing that I'm, I'm wondering about is like, again, interoperability. When it comes to the companies that you're investing in, how important is interoperability? Because you mentioned ENS, but there's mm-hmm. also uh, a number of the uh, Lens Protocol just launched yep. the other day, right? So there are several different identity yep. providers that are coming out that are ostensibly using, you know, Ethereum or whatever namespace they're using to create the new kind of like, you know, this is my login, this is my identity yep. on the web. But now there's going to be dozens of them, and they're not going to be interoperable, and so we're going well, to end up having this I, plurality yeah. of solutions once again. Well, well but I, yeah, I mean, like I haven't, so I haven't looked dug into the details of Lens, but the, if you build, for example, if you build something with using smart contracts in Ethereum, it's it's interoperable by default, right? I mean, every smart contract in Ethereum is open source and callable by any person. Yeah, yeah. And there's no sort of owner; it's just yeah. it's literally a community resource, right? Yeah. And that, and that's certainly the way that we we view the world and we want every, you know, we, we'd certainly encourage that. Um, so I haven't dug into this lens, the social kind of stuff that we have invested in, um, <clears throat> all of them embrace interoperability. And look, it's not in web three, the mentality is not like I'm doing it. In web two, the mentality is I'll do interoperability 
begrudgingly because people demand it, but ultimately I don't want to do it. And that's why, by the way, remember the whole kind of mashup movement, 2008 ish yep. Yep. and totally. all the and widgets commons and all, and all that stuff. stuff. It yep. basically all went away. Mm. Uh, all these people put restrictions on their API because it wasn't in their business interest. And web three is opposite, which is you want more people to use. You want this, we call it composability. You want people to build mm. on top of you. And you don't need to like have these things where you build these, these gated communities because you want more and more people. Like look at Ethereum. They, they love it when people build layer two and side chains and other kinds of things on top of it. It just makes the whole thing more popular. It makes more people, it, it increases on the business model side, it increases demand for the token. Um, and so there's an incentive to interoperate as well in Web3. And that's very important. It kind of flips the incentives around. Yeah. I'm okay. That. Brian? Yeah, absolutely. Last one, Chris. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, you, Sorry. You alluded to this. Oh, oh, Chris Dixon, I should specify. Um, <laughs> sure. no, no. Uh, you alluded to this a little bit earlier. Um, Talking about you know sort of the anger and the haterade going on yeah. against uh, Web three and crypto, yeah. and you know we were there in Web two yeah. that wasn't there. In, in fact, quite the opposite. It, the, the broader world seemed to think the internet fad had ended, and so people yeah. could create without that headwind. When, when you're especially you know we talked about gaming, there seems to be this yeah. gamer backlash to it. So when you're dealing when you're talking with developers and you're you're dealing with you know projects. What do you? How do you think of that, and how do you yeah. tell the developers to think of this headwind, where the potentially the users that you're trying to convert have yeah. this animus to what you're doing? Yeah. you know, from from the go. Yeah. Well, I think there's, I think there's a, there's a great question. I think a couple layers to it. I think one, the tech is just in focus. So back in the 2000s, right, everything was dismissed as all the Web two stuff was dismissed as kind of a, a sideshow, right? Um, you know, New York Times would put the word tweet in quotes until like 2013, and it was like this thing where nerds went to have lunch, right? And we all remember it, and at some point that flipped, and people realized, you know, I think it had to do with politics and a bunch of other things. People realized how important these things are. And so just, I think all of tech now is under the microscope, and it's just people now don't dismiss anything as a joke anymore because they know that it, that's not a very, you know, just it, it's, it's not smart to underestimate how important these these kind of internet technologies can be, right? So I just think the giant, the overall climate has shifted. I think you have this kind of level of scrutiny now in a lot of areas of tech, including Web three. I look. I think it's also like we're, a lot of people that are critics right now. They were Web two darlings, and it's not fun to not be the you know the cool person anymore. And so they, you know, I just think there's a set of incentives. We have incumbents now in a way that we didn't back then. You know, who have vested interests. Um, and I, you know, I think they're going to end up doing a whole bunch of things, including funding various stuff, et cetera. Um, and so that that's a big kind of difference from then. Sorry, what was the second part of your question? Just when you're uh, talking to people on these projects, what is yeah. your advice to them for facing oh, yeah, this yeah, headwind? Yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned the games thing. Like, look, my impression on the games thing, like I've talked to a lot of gaming techs, including at big game companies. They're all charging for it with their blockchain stuff. Their data, their focus groups say that like almost no normal people actually – you know, dislike Web3. It's coming from like a very vocal, like 2% of the community and a few like, you know, blogs and things. I don't think it's serious. I think it'll go away. The games, the games world also like hated, uh, you know, hated mobile gaming, hated, hated uh, free to play. Um, I, you know, and I think once we have a few hit games and they see how cool it can be and they see, see the games are great, um, that will change very quickly. So I, I don't, I don't take that, you know, that kind of just, and I, and I read some of those criticisms and they're just, they're just literally talking about something else. Like it's just complete straw man argument. So it's really hard for me to take that seriously. I think it's just, you know, but like, I think it's, we also live in a very politically charged time. I think in some people's minds, web three crypto has taken on a kind of political valence of, you know, libertarianism or something, which 
I think might be somewhat true of kind of early Bitcoin users. I think it's very not true of modern Web3, which I think of as politically agnostic and could be, you know, in many ways, actually a very kind of communitarian um, bent to the technology. So I think for some reason there's that kind of tinge to the discussions. I think that will go away as people, again, as we build popular products and people see kind of the true nature of the tech and the fact that, you know, it can have all these kind of democratizing um, effects on the Internet. So I, I think it's all just sort of a matter of kind of um, just stuff that will go away over time. And, and you know, and I think most of the founders I work with think that too. Well, you know, uh, a very famous investor once wrote that the next big thing is often dismissed as a toy or, or a joke or yeah. something. I can't, I can't remember what you yeah. said. So toy, um, yeah. maybe you trained all of us to not be so dismissive of the new, you know. Um, yeah, okay. I mean, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah listen, Chris, thank you so much yeah, for yeah, your sure. time. Um, anyone listening to this on the podcast, the link to the report from A16Z is in the show notes. Um, good to talk to you again, Chris. All right. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate thanks, Chris. Good questions. Really good. So uh, thank you, Chris Dixon. Thank you, Chris Messina, for a great interview with Chris yeah. Dixon. Thank you, everybody. This will be on the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast feed tomorrow afternoon. Uh, I love everybody. 